you'll open up your Bibles to John chapter 19, we're looking at verse 17 through, I want to say 30, but you know how it is. We're looking at the crucifixion this morning. I'm so thankful that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record in depth the crucifixion of Jesus. John as well, little, each one just has some little different things, some additions, some helpful things. And for those of you that come into this church today, you're suffering. You know, there's all kinds of painful things, whether it's physical pain, your body is breaking down, you, you have some sort of disease or illness or virus or, you know, a cancer or, you know, those joints aren't moving like they used to, that back isn't bending like it once did, and, and it's, you're in anguish these days, or, or you just battle um, just emotional distress Listen to an incredible podcast this week by Sean McDowell, Think Biblically is the podcast, and just uh, a professor from, uh, gosh, Biola, I think it was, just talking about how important um, our emotions are. A lot of times we, we love the Bible so much and we just love theology that sometimes we're like, ah, kick emotions to the curb, but like God is an emotional God and he's given us emotions and those things just shouldn't be tossed out. And maybe you're just hurting in many ways emotionally. Um, or maybe there's just all kinds of anguish and suffering. And you've got to know today as we come to the crucifixion of Jesus, that the God that we preach here at Calvary Chapel, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, isn't a God who just for all eternity has sat on some beach somewhere on a deck chair, sipping pina coladas or lemonade, you know, and like that's, that's not him. He's been intimately connected with the deeds and affairs of mankind since he created, and he's sought out and he's pursued. And the book of Hebrews tells us that um, God is uh, so much better than the angels uh, because he created the angels, so he's got that on him, but also because he became a man and he dwelt on the earth and he knows what it's like to become a man. And in all points, he was tempted and tested as you are, yet without sin. And so because of that, Hebrews tells us we have a merciful and faithful high priest who's always ready to intercede with us whenever we need him. And so today, as you look at the cross, let your heart soften towards the Lord and his tender compassion to you because he's been there and he's experienced it. He's familiar with sufferings and he's acquainted with grief. And for those of you that wonder if anyone loves you, if you're just very lonely or you've blown it, and you just feel like, I'm all alone, you know, uh, I'm, I'm hurting, you know, I'm lonely, and does anyone even love me? Does anyone know that I'm here? Uh, you can look at the cross and know that he loves you. Uh, it's been said that the cross is the great pulpit that declares the love of God toward men. Speaking of pulpits, what do you think, guys, huh? Yeah, this is a new pulpit, first week with it. Matt Dawes, you're an animal with that blowtorch, I'm telling you, and Dustin with the wood. But, you know, think of our pulpit, our new pulpit, and what it's used for. We've got the word laid out, and it proclaims the wonderful love of Christ towards sinners. If you ever wonder if God loves you, look at the cross. It's just declaring to you that someone loves you. As Romans 5.8 says, 
But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still war with God, Christ died for us on that cross. That's how you know that you're loved. There's a hymn from 1875 called Man of Sorrows, What a Name. You know, from Isaiah, Man of Sorrows, Acquainted with Grief. What a name, the hymn writer says. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, helpless, Lost were we, blameless Lamb of God was he, sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He was lifted up to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a savior. And I love that we sang it again in modern form today. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Hallelujah, king forever. We thank you for the cross. And so verse 17 gets into it. And he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And so he bearing his cross, Jesus would have most likely not carried the whole T of the cross, but just the crossbar called the patibulum, some 110 to 120 pounds. He would carry on his shoulders and upon his back, shoulders and back that had just been opened up violently by the twin Roman phlegorums, the whipping and the beating that he would have received, which by design would have opened up his flesh, opened up his rib cage, showed his vital organs. He then packs for about a half a mile, this Roman implement of execution. As one man said, before the Romans would put a man on a cross, They would put a cross on a man and they would lead him through a long public procession that was intended to draw attention to this condemned man, to his crime and to his fate. So many historians say it was normally that cross piece, the patibulum, and not that complete uh, gibbet as it's been called, that this man would carry to an execution where those upright stakes called stipes would already be positioned. Taken on this long route to the cross in an effort to be even more morbid and to create a crowd that would watch the execution. Sometimes on his way, people would declare that this man is innocent, which would even cause another mock trial to happen, lasting hours, and at times, that person already beaten would never make it to the place of crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that on his way, they found a man from Cyrene. His name was Simon, where they compelled him to bear the cross, and that 
different gospels say different things. One would say that he would carry it all the way, the rest of the way, towards Golgotha. Romans 16, 13, Paul in his conclusion to the Romans says, Greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord and his mother and mine. It's interesting to read of this Rufus because the only other place we see Rufus in the New Testament is in Mark's account that Simon the Cyrenian was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Both would become leaders in the church in Rome later on in life. So you can only imagine the impact that Simon felt when he carried the cross of this innocent man uh, to his place of execution. Carson says that Roman practice was that each criminal, as part of his punishment, he would carry his cross on his back. Plutarch in the Divine Vengeance quotes this as well. The horizontal bar, bearing it on his shoulders to the place of execution where the upright beams of the gibbet was already fastened in the ground. The victim then was made to lie on his back on the ground where his arms were stretched out and either tied or nailed to the patibulum. The cross member was then hoisted up along with the victim and fastened in the vertical beam. The victim's feet were tied or nailed to the upright, to which was also sometimes attached a piece of wood that served as a kind of seat, or known as the seducula or the sedulum, that partially supported the body's weight. This was designed to increase the agony, not relieve the agony. And so bearing his cross, John 19 tells us he went out to a place called the place of the skull, a place in Hebrew which is called Golgotha. Something very special about this place, Golgotha. In Hebrew it means skull or head bone or cranium. This head bone, this Golgotha, there's one place north of the city, a place where since the 1800s they believe, many have believed this to be the place of Calvary called Gordon's Tomb and Gordon's Golgotha. That's where we often go when we go to Israel. Um, it's up for debate on if this is the place or if the Church of the Holy Sepulcher might be. Um, but one fascinating thing about this location, now it's a bus stop. Um, but there was also known to be an execution yard underneath a cliff face that uh, for 2,000 years has looked like, I don't know if you can see it when you look at it, but uh, appears to look like a skull. This place is located on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, in Israel. Mount Moriah is the place where Abraham was told to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loved. And since Tertullian... This type has been found in Isaac when reading it, that it points to Jesus. If you look in Genesis 22 too, and I've got it on the screen for you, the Lord says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Does that take your mind to any other verses in the Bible? A son, a one and only son whom he loved. Where does that take you? John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That if anyone would believe in him, they wouldn't perish, but they'd have everlasting life. And so a a type or a, a picture of Jesus from the Old Testament is found in Isaac. A picture of the father found in Abraham. Take now your son, Abraham, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering 
on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So it's so interesting. When you're in Israel, you'll sit on the southern steps of the mount and you'll look to the south, but the southwest, and you'll see the area where Abraham's coming from. And you'll see that he would have had to go up towards the mountain, up towards Moriah. And there on Moriah, on one of the mountains of Mount Moriah, was where he would offer his son up as a sacrifice. And I'm kind of hopping through some of Genesis 22 here, but if you look at verse 6 through 8. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And so we can see a type in this as well. The father laying the wood for the sacrifice upon the back of his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, look, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. The original Hebrew says, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And that is exactly what God did. He provided himself as that offering for sin. In Genesis twenty-two thirteen, then Abraham lifted up his eyes. And so the drama has been continued. Isaac is bound and laid upon the altar. Isaac takes the knife and is, or Abraham takes the knife and is about to plunge it into his son as an offering. And Abraham lifts up his eyes and he looks. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Of course, we can look back on that and now say, on the mount of the Lord, it was provided. Those from the past looked forward to that day and said, on Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide himself a ram. They looked forward to it. And we, knowing the history, can look back on it and know that this is that area. It's the same place, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 24, where David and the children of Israel were being punished for David's sin during a census. And because of this sin, uh, a plague came upon the whole nation. People were dying by the thousands. David could literally look up and see the angel of the Lord killing people with a plague. And finally, the David just cried out and said, Lord, please stop this. It's because of my sin, and so let it be on me. And so the Lord directed David to go and make a sacrifice, and he went up on Mount Moriah to Arana's threshing floor. And, uh, and he went and he told Arana, hey, I need to purchase your oxen and your implements uh, so that I can end this, make a sacrifice that will end this plague. And Arana said, oh, king, you're my king. Just, you can have the animals and you can have the implements. You know, it'd be my honor to give them to you. And David says just an incredible quote. How can I offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing? It's a great lesson for all of us. And he ends up buying those implements and buying those oxen. And there on Mount Moriah, on the threshing floor of Arana, David makes a sacrifice that would end the plague caused by sin. It's there on Arana's threshing floor on Mount Moriah that God made a sacrifice, the sacrifice of his one and only son that would end the plague of sin 
towards all humanity. It's the place where Solomon would build the temple, located there for hundreds of years, located where many Passover lambs by the thousands would be slaughtered, their blood pouring down Mount Moriah into the Kidron Valley, into the Brook Kidron, which then led down to the Dead Sea. It's there on Mount Moriah that Jesus would come from the Temple Mount, crossing over that brook on Passover, stepping over the blood of the Lamb, being himself the Lamb who would soon shed his blood. It was said, though, that the importance of this, though, isn't in geography, but in theology. It's not so much that it was on Mount Moriah, as much as it is that the Lord has provided a sacrifice that takes away all of our sins. And if that is not good news that just makes your heart jump, then man, you need to spend a little time fasting and praying and considering it. The crucifixion site, Johnson tells us, was purposely chosen to be outside of the city walls because the law forbade such within the city walls for sanitary reasons. The crucified body was sometimes left to rot on the cross and served as a disgrace a convincing warning and deterrent to passers-by. Lipsus tells us, sometimes the subject was eaten while alive and still on the cross by wild beasts. But the soldiers would carry out their business as usual. It says it was there that they crucified him on Mount Moriah, verse 18. They crucified him and two others with him, one on each side, And Jesus in the center. They crucified him. In the ancient world, one of the most terrible punishments was always associated with shame and horror, was crucifixion. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without sanction from the emperor. The victim would be stripped naked and beaten to a pulpy weakness. They would then hang on the sun for uh, many hot hours, sometimes even days. As you study crucifixion, what actually would kill the victim isn't blood loss or even having their nails, uh, their hands nailed to a post, but it was suffocation. As their body would hang down, their chest cavity would close, and as they got weaker and weaker, they could no longer breathe. They would try for hours to push up on the nail through their feet to get a breath, but then they would have to go back down and hours and hours of trying to get a breath, sometimes resting on the sedial uh, there, um, which would kind of throw them off. It wasn't so much as a little resting place. It would actually cause it to be harder and harder for them. They would eventually die with chest cavity collapsed, um, suffocation. Uh, One man says to breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. The nails, seven inch nails would be driven through not so much the hands as they would perfect it from the Persians, but with the median nerve in the wrist. Uh, Doctors have studied the median nerve when punctured causes such pain to shoot through your body, your jaw locks. And also having it through the median nerve of the wrist would give more strength for the pulling and pushing of a victim to get their breath. One uh, artifact found in Israel, it's actually in the Jerusalem Museum, I've seen it myself, 
uh, shows that this, this one victim wasn't nailed through the tops of his feet, but rather had both feet nailed through the side on the side of the cross, something that they would push on to get breath. Terrible muscle spasms would rack the entire body, intense dehydration, collapse meant asphyxiation, so the strain would have to go on and on. In Psalm 22, 16, we have a prophecy. It's incredible. A thousand years before uh, the cross of Jesus was Psalm 22, which closes with, they pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22 is known as the Psalm of the cross. Some 30 prophecies specifically about Jesus and the crucifixion resurrection event are written down in Psalm 22, uh, a thousand years before Jesus 600 years before the Romans would even start doing um, uh, crucifixion and 400 years before the Persians would invent it. And so just this incredible prophecy. I was in high school the first time I read Psalm 22 and I was just so blown away by these 30 specific prophecies that clearly speak of Jesus that I went home to some secular family and cousins and I sat them all down on the couch, non-believers, And I just said, you guys, you've got to see this. And I just opened up Psalm 22 and I read to them. I'm like, can you believe this? And they kind of slouching back on the couch. You're like, let's get back to playing Duck Hunt on Nintendo, you know. And uh, and so, but passionate since high school about the Psalm of the Cross. Read it on your own, maybe even this afternoon. And see all of the incredible prophecies. But where David would say, they pierced my hands and my feet. This was unknown at the time that David wrote it. And very messianic and prophetic of Jesus. The Persians inventing crucifixions, the Romans perfecting it, making it an institution, a form of execution reserved for the worst criminals and the lowest classes. Crucifixion was designed to make a victim die publicly and slowly. Oftentimes we think of that great scene of three crosses on a hill, way in a distance with a nice grassy meadow underneath it. But regular crucifixions were down, right outside the city, on the main streets, the main thoroughfares, not on tall crosses, but on six to eight foot crosses at eye level with people on the street as they were passing by. Humiliation through nakedness defecation upon themselves. It was a form of death that God ordained for Jesus to die. And it was a form of death that Jesus willingly submitted to in the will of God. Crucifixion was so awful and degrading, polite Roman citizens would not talk about it in public. The Roman statesman Cicero said of crucifixion, quote, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To execute him is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable it is impossible to find any word to adequately express. Tacitus called crucifixion, quote, A torture fit only for slaves. A word that does describe crucifixion would be excruciating. And one reason why that word fits it so well is that the word excruciate actually comes from the Latin excruciate. Ex meaning out of, cruciate means crucifixion. 
out of crucifixion. So the next time you stub your toe in the middle of the night, you know, or hit your thumb with a hammer, oh, it was excruciating. You might consider your word choice, you know, oh, really, you were nailed through the median nerves causing lockjaw, you were suffocating, and you know, nails in the, I don't think so, bub, you know, I'm about to take an ibuprofen and go back to bed. Out of the cross, or from, you got to laugh a little bit or you'll cry, um, Tenney and others write that archaeologists discovered in 1968 the remains of a man crucified in Jesus's era. The study of the remains revealed that the victim was nailed to the cross in a sitting position. So both legs were over sideways with the nail penetrating the sides of both feet just below the heel. The arms were stretched out, each stabbed by a nail in the forearm. Dr. Nico Haas, Hebrew University anatomy professor, described it as, quote, a compulsive position, a difficult and unnatural posture meant to increase the agony of the sufferer. Leon Morris says, and there was a horn-like projection, the sedile, the seat, which the crucified man straddled. This took some of the weight of the body and prevented the flesh from tearing from the nails. According to Dr. William Edwards in the Journal of the American Medical Association, he says death from crucifixion would come from many sources. Acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, or congestive heart failure, leading to cardiac rupture. If the victim did not die quickly enough, The legs were broken and the victim was soon unable to breathe and died of suffocation. Uh, I appreciate uh, learning from a mentor of mine, though he sort of knows it, Alistair Begg, uh, when he says, you know, that the gospels are kind of vague on all of this stuff. They don't really get in too much to these gory details. And perhaps that is to tune our heart and our mind to really the greater suffering that Jesus went through. Uh, The suffering and the anguish was really when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me and you're so far from the voice of my groaning? Because it was there that on the cross, not only is it the greatest act of God's mercy and love, but it's also the greatest act of God's wrath. He's pouring out his wrath towards sinners. As we sing, the father turned his face away from the son and didn't see him as a son for a moment but saw him as one that would take the wrath of God towards sinners it's been said that the soul of Christ's sufferings were really in the sufferings of his soul and there at Calvary he was crucified and two others with him our verse tells us one on either side and Jesus in the center There were three scheduled executions that day, three scheduled crucifixions on that day. These two thieves and one, we can assume, was Barabbas. Do you remember Barabbas? History tells us that his name was Jesus Barabbas, or Yeshua, Joshua, Barabbas, Joshua, son of the father, Bar-Abbas. And it was Jesus, the son of the father, that took the place of Jesus, the son of the father, at the cross. They hear Jesus, the son of God, takes Barabbas' place. 
It's another way that Jesus was identified with sinners at his death. Plummer writes, the whole of humanity was represented there. The sinless savior, as you know the story, I'm kind of jumping ahead. One of these thieves would become repentant. You guys know that story. So we have the sinless savior, the saved penitent, and the condemned impenitent. Today, are you a saved penitent or a condemned unpenitent? Was that how it goes? Unpenitent? It's a word I use all the time, clearly. Russell, are you unpenitent right now? I don't... Okay. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 53, where it's prophesied. This is also a, um, the suffering savior prophecy of Jesus, where it says at the end of verse 12 that he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many. Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors there at Calvary, fulfilling scripture. In Mark chapter 15, verse 32, when people are mocking Jesus, they said to Jesus at the cross, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And it says that, that even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So those two guys that started out as he was hung there with him, they both were lashing out at him. I mean, how wicked do you have to be that you're mocking other people and making fun of other people when you yourself are like condemned for the same fate, right? Well, only one is going to remember, think of that. In Luke 23, 39, then one of the criminals who hung or hanged blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God? Seeing that you are under the same condemnation, and we, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a lot about that story, but I would say that that is one of the greatest death uh, examples of a deathbed salvation and a deathbed confessional that we can see a man who within hours earlier than this if not minutes was reviling jesus and cursing jesus and blaspheming jesus and then just before death has godly sorrow in his heart that brought repentance asking jesus to forgive him and to remember him when he uh when he would die. And so verse 19 tells us that Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So it was a very common thing. This is not some weird thing that Pilate did like, oh, you know, he had, he had it out for Jesus. No, almost every criminal would have this titleless nailed above him. He would carry it from the judgment seat out to the place of crucifixion with the cross made of jimson board or something like that. It would have the sentence and the, the crime written on this placard. And this one, written by Pilate, says, Jesus Nazareth, King of the Jews. And then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, in Latin. So maybe Pilate wrote it with his own hand, maybe not. The NIV says Pilate had a note prepared, but it was customary for them to wear this placard. And as they carried it, I mentioned earlier, sometimes people would see that accusation 
And they would say, stop, stop everything. This man is innocent. And there would be given like some due course to maybe prove the case again. Sometimes it took hours. This board with whitened gymsum used for public notices was written in three languages by Pilate. Hebrew, Greek, or Latin. Uh, Hebrew was the local language or Aramaic, the local language spoken there. Greek was the global language um, and that of commerce and kind of like English is today. You know, everywhere you go, there's signs written in the other languages and then there's just in English, you know, just in case someone from America who never took second grade Spanish, you know, like, oh yeah, I I don't know one language. I apologize, you know, and uh, so they're going to throw English on there just for us or air traffic controllers and pilots speak English through uh, the intercom. It was kind of the Greek of the day. Um, the global language and that of commerce. And then Latin, written by Pilate, the language of royalty. Tenney says it was Aramaic for local inhabitants, Latin for the officials, and Greek, the lingua franca of the Eastern Mediterranean world. And Trapp says, in Hebrew, for the Jews who gloried in the law, in Greek, for the Grecians who glorified in wisdom, and in Latin, for the Roman who must most glorified in dominion and power. But to us, we see this title, Jesus the King of the Jews, written in many languages, and our mind says, Amen. He is the King of the Jews, and He is the King over every tribe, tongue, language, and people. And we flash forward to, uh, well, let's flash back to Genesis, to the covenant with Abraham. Where God says to Abraham, hey, I know that you don't have any kids now and that you and your wife are old and it seems like impossible, you're barren, but I got to tell you, I'm going to give you a son and in your son's son, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Nations that speak Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, they're going to be blessed by this guy. Flash forward to the end of the world, to Revelation chapter 5, and we see that people are worshiping Jesus and saying, worthy are you, worthy are you, our king, for you have rescued us from every tribe, tongue, people, and language group. And this we see, the great missiology of the Lord, that he has a mission that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would come to know Jesus as their king. Not just the Jews. Yes, the Jews, but not just the Jews. Jesus is king of the universe. He's king on a cosmic level. And I would ask you today, is Jesus the king of your heart? Is Jesus the king of your life? Peter says on the day of Pentecost that God has made this man, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ. Christ and Kyrios in the Greek. Savior and Lord. You've heard it before. Jesus, Lord and Savior. Oh, we love the Savior part, don't we? Oh, yep, I realize that I've sinned and I need my sins washed away. And so, Lord, if you could just do that, that'd be awesome. And I'll just kind of move on with life. But it's not just that he desires to be your Savior. He desires to be your Lord as well. You're curious in the Greek. He desires to be the master of your life. And he's a good master. He's a gentle master. He's a master that's led by example. He's the master that gives you the power to do all that he calls you to do. Here Jesus is king of the Jews, but he desires to be the Lord of your life. Perhaps today would be a day that you would surrender to him and let him have the throne of your heart. 
In 21, the Jews had heard this and seen the sign, and they, it says, Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but he said, I'm the King of the Jews. Pilate, who didn't have an eraser on his number two pencil, didn't have any whiteout nearby, you know, he's like, we're not playing that game, all right? But it was more than that. Carson says, the wording is Pilate's last act of revenge in this case. He's already taunted the Jews with Jesus' kingship in verses 14 and 15. Here he does it again, mocking their convenient allegiance to Caesar by insisting that Jesus is their king and snickering at their powerless status before the might of Rome by declaring this wretched victim their king. He's determined to humiliate those who humiliated him. And this view of Pilate's confirmed by other historians. Philo describes Pilate as a naturally inflexible blend of self-will and relentlessness. He wasn't going to erase it and switch it up last minute. But Pilate's malice actually beautifully serves God's end, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews, and they are crucifying him. I love when Peter tells him this on the day of Pentecost, preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells him, you took this man and had him crucified. And they're all listening, and they say, whatever should we do? Like they just are told, you crucified the Messiah that was coming to save you. You killed him. And some of them were humble enough to be real and say, now what? (laughs) And he says, repent. Repent of your sin. And receive forgiveness and times of refreshing will flow from the throne of God towards you. And you'll receive the same spirit that you now see and hear because the promise is to you and to your children and to your children and as many as far off who will follow. I will not alter what I've written. Not to mention Roman law forbid the sentence to be changed once it was written down. I love what F.F. Bruce, the historian, writes. The crucified one is the true king. Can I get an amen? You're like, oh wait, say it again. The crucified one is the true king. Amen? All right. But I really love what Bruce says. He's the kingliest of all. He's the king. That's a word that I would use, like kingliestest, you know? He's the kingliest of all because it is he who is stretched on the cross. He turns an obscene instrument of torture into a throne of glory and reigns from the tree. Oh, James and John, you want to sit at my right hand in glory? Well, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh, totally. That country time lemonade we were talking about earlier? No, it's going to be the cross. It's going to be what I'm going to call my glory. And there I'm going to reign from the tree. Verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. The historian Artemidorus II writes, men were ordinarily crucified naked. The Sanhedrin wrote, Jewish sensitivities 
dictate that men ought not to be publicly executed completely naked, and men condemned to stoning are permitted a loincloth. Lane's commentary on Luke says, whether the Romans were considering Jewish feelings in this matter is unknown, but Jesus, for the most part, was crucified naked. As Dodds tells us, Apuleius has a companion verse uh, writing, quote, naked as a newborn babe or as naked as the crucified. This shows that Jesus came all the way down the ladder to accomplish our salvation. He let go of everything. He let go of every bit of clothing being completely poor for us so that we could be completely rich in him. It was common for Roman soldiers to add to their wardrobes, uh, either to keep garments from victims or to sell. In a matter of hours from this scene, someone is going to be wearing these garments, this tunic, and these sandals and belt. When asked where he got them, one of these is about to say, from the scene over at Skull Hill this afternoon. And so in verse 24, the Roman soldiers said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This incredible phrase, therefore the soldiers did these things. Normally, Jews in Palestine wore a tunic next to the skin and an outer garment, something like a robe. Here, John tells us that they divided Jesus' clothes into four parts. It was decided, though, to gamble for an item that would not need to be dismembered. It was a sad loss since this garment was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. And again, it's a prophecy fulfilled from the Psalm of the Cross, Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a thousand years before Jesus that this was written. In the same passage as my hands and my feet, they pierce. An incredible tie, and there's a lot of ties that people make in this. One incredible one I wanted to share with you was a tie of Jesus' garments taken from him, reminding us of the foot washing. At the foot washing in John 13, Jesus laid aside his garments, his outer garments, when he washed the disciples' feet in an act that anticipated the cleansing that would come from his death. So here he loses his clothes, all of his clothes. The same self-humbling operates, but here all the way to the last degree as he lays aside his glory. And by this act and great paradox is glorified. Final quote here from uh, Carson. Yet while his last earthly possessions are stripped from him, he remains under his father's sovereign care as his tunic is not torn and destroyed. And so the soldiers did these things. They carry out a barbaric task and coolly profit from the exercise. I mean, don't let this, you know, your familiarity with, um, with this story uh, just cause you to go numb. In fact, I'm just thinking we sang a verse 
Um, and I think it's in that hymn we did at the end that Rhonda was singing with us. And it says something about like thinking about it. I don't even know if I really even know about it. I mean, that's my paraphrase, but I'm like thinking about Calvary. I'm thinking about Gethsemane, thinking about, do I even know it? Like, is it even, I mean, maybe we're like trying to get it going on in here. Like, oh my goodness, all of this, but has it even affected here? And the Roman soldiers are really a lot like us. In a couple hours, homeboy is going to be cruising around in a garment that Jesus was just wearing, essentially walking a mile in his shoes. And there's the greatest disconnect going on in this guy because he's wearing the clothes, but he just coolly crucified the guy. Has there been any change? Has there been any heart change? Maybe he was the soldier that said, as the darkness covered the earth and the earthquake happened and the veil of the temple, maybe he was the one that said, Truly, this was a righteous man. Or truly, this is the Son of God. Or maybe he was a guy that just externally just crucified some religious crazy man, and now I'm going to take his clothes, I'm really good at dice, I want it, and now I'm going to go off from here. But which are you? Put yourself in those shoes. How many times have you read this story, and you're just cruising around in Jesus' garments like, what? Or have you been affected by the righteous garments that have been given to you. I just uh, was watching a movie with Lindsay, and in the movie they were watching a movie, and, and it, was, it looked like Ben-Hur from the old days, and it was this Jesus-type scene and some Roman soldiers, and I was like, Who, what is this movie? And I looked it up, and it's called The Robe. I don't know if anyone's ever seen The Robe, and I want to look it up. But it's, I've never heard of it before until just this last week. And I'm like, there's a movie out about kind of what if, what would have happened if you're the Roman soldier who gets Jesus's robe? Where do you go from here? And apparently his life was dramatically changed. Kind of like Simon the Cyrenian who carried the cross. Where do you go from this point? But to completely give your life to Jesus. Jesus now gives Mary, his mother, to John. They're stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So a mother was there. You can only imagine the heart-wrenching moment of agony for Mary as she saw her son crucified. You've got Mary's uh, cousin, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who is actually Salome, John and James' mom. So something we kind of learned from this passage is that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were Jesus' cousins. Their mom, Salome, the wife of Clopas, uh, is Mary's uh, cousin. Crazy stuff. I know you're like, whoa, you lost me clear back at the robe and what would I... Okay, the movie. Okay. But you've got uh, the aunt there as well, James and John's mom. And you have Mary Magdalene that Jesus delivered from seven demons. Do you think she ever forgot what it was like to have seven demons? I think she ever you know, forgot those hard times and that it was Jesus who delivered and brought freedom. But here they are, the ones that were at the cross, these brave women, the same women that would discover the empty tomb in just a couple of days. There's an old hymn that says, Where were you when they crucified my Lord? Where were you when they crucified my Lord? I'm reading that wrong. I mean, it's basically the same thing. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Either way, both are good. Where were you? Were you there? Question is, 
Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, it says. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there, the second verse, when they nailed him to the tree? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? And so when Jesus saw that his mother, verse 26, and the disciples whom he loved were standing by, uh, the disciple whom he loved, we know that to be John, the evangelist here, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home and took care of her. And uh, Not those other brothers of Jesus. They did not yet believe in Jesus, thought he was crazy. And so they wouldn't come around for a few more days until the resurrection. But um, John would take Mary under his wing and care for her. Verse 28, after this, we're wrapping up here. We're only going through verse 30 today. So just muster just a little more energy and focus on these final moments. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, uh, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. So common sense that a man scourged, bleeding, and hanging on a cross under the near eastern sun would be desperately dehydrated and that thirst would be a part of the torture. But fulfilling prophecy from the Psalm of the Cross in Psalm 22:15, it says, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt or like a dry piece of pottery. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Jesus being thirsty, fulfilling prophecy, knows that the end is soon, it says. He's been brought to the dust of death. And his thirst shows that. And so a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Early on, Mark's gospel tells us that they offered him uh, wine with myrrh uh, to be as an antiseptic and to um, anesthetic and to take away the pain and uh, to medicate him. And Jesus refused that. This was just a cheap wine that the soldiers would drink that would help quench his thirst. Fulfilling Psalm 69, 21, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar uh, to drink. Only John the evangelist here mentions that the sponge was placed on a branch of hyssop Hyssop referenced in the Passover, something that sprinkled the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost of the house. Uh, One of the only mentionings after of hyssop is here um, in this account. Barclay tells us that the very mention of hyssop would take the thought of any Jew back to the saving blood of the Passover lamb. And so as they see hyssop touched to Jesus' lips, um, their minds would go there. Verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. We have this verb spoken by Jesus, teleo, which is what we get this form, te telestai from. And it speaks of carrying out a task. The task has been accomplished. And most often it's used in religious contexts with an overtone of fulfilling one's religious obligations. So Jesus here offering himself up as the spiritual 
sacrifice that atones for the sins of the world, prophesied of for thousands of years since the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, where he crushes Satan's head here on the cross. He himself is bruised and he is saying, I have crushed Satan's head and I'm the lamb whose blood has been shed. It is finished. Jesus' final words, te telestai, in the ancient Greek, was the cry of a winner. He's not defeated here. He's winning. And he's finished the eternal purpose of the cross. Today, it still stands as Jesus' finished work. It's the foundation of Christian peace and truth and faith. It's the finished work of atonement, where Jesus paid in full the debt that we owed because of our sins. Any doctrine that would teach that there needs to be perpetual sacrifice of Jesus over and over and over again, and I'll let you use your own Encyclopedia Britannica to find out who's preaching that out there, is a false teaching, it's a false religion, and it's strayed from the word of God. Jesus said, te telestai, it is finished, it is accomplished. And the book of Hebrews trumpets that over and over again, two of which times from Hebrews 7.27 says, Our high priest does not need daily as those high priests to offer sacrifices up first for his own sins and then for the people's sins. For this he did how many times and how often? Once for all when he offered up himself. So Jesus is better than the great high priest because Jesus doesn't have to regularly offer up sacrifices for himself. He offered up himself, his own self. And he doesn't have to regularly kill a lamb over and over again to cover over the sins because he offered up himself one time, once and for all. And then in Hebrews 10.10, by that will we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. How many times and how often? Once for all. At some point before Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Before he cried out, it is finished, An awesome spiritual transaction took place between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father laid upon the Son all of the guilt and wrath that my sin deserves and your sin deserves. And maybe tonight, before you go to bed, find a quiet place in the home and hit the deck and think about your sin for a little bit. And think about how God's wrath necessarily has to be poured out on your sin or upon someone else. And it's here that we celebrate to know that it's upon Jesus. He bore in himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God towards sinner. Charles Spurgeon says, It was a conqueror's cry, Te telestai, it is finished. It was uttered with a loud voice. There is nothing of anguish about it. Nothing about it. There's no wailing in it. It's the cry of one who has completed a tremendous labor. Leon Morris. Jesus died with the cry of the victor on his lips. This is not the moan of the defeated nor the sigh of patient resignation. It's the triumphant recognition that he has now fully accomplished the work that he came to do. Tenney says the verb to leo is used in 1st and 2nd centuries in the sense of fulfilling or paying a debt and often appears on receipts. Jesus' statement, it is finished, is the receipt that we interpret 
as it's paid in full. Our debt, our bill, our invoice, Christians, it's paid in full. Let's have the worship team come on up. As they're coming, F.B. FB Meyer tells us, From the gates of Eden, the blood of sacrifice had begun to flow, augmented by the confident streams of the years. From that moment, however, not another drop of blood needs to be shed. The types were finished now that the anti-type has been realized. Spurgeon again, Has he finished his work for me? Then I must get to work for him. And I must persevere until I finish my work. Not to save myself, for that's all done, but because I am saved. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down. And Jesus willingly laid down his head and gave up his spirit. Will you guys stand with me as we move towards worship? combination of Billy Graham crusade or something and school of ministry or Bible college. Lots of information. And the danger with information is it just can kind of puff up our head and we can get focused on the facts of the matter, but not the relevance of the matter. Why is it relevant that Jesus died the death of the cross? It is so relevant because every single one of us in this room has sinned once, twice, three times a sinner in total rebellion. We've chosen our ways instead of his. And so every one of us in this room needs a savior. We need atonement for our sin. And you can strive and white-knuckle it and try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. But the Bible says it and experience confirms you'll never do good enough. The beautiful news of the gospel is that it's not by works of righteousness that we try to do, but the work that Jesus did there on the cross. Not only on the cross, in his whole life that he lived. And it's almost insulting to us to say, so now all you need to do is just believe in the Lord and you'll be saved. We're men and women from Central Oregon. We got to do something. Tell me what to do. I got to get dirty and dusty. See, that's where you get to humble yourself. You get to lay down your pride. And with genuine heart say, I know that I'm a sinner. I've done enough. What I get to bring to the table is my sin that needs pardoned. Those are the labors of my hands. And so we just say with simplicity, I need you, Jesus, and I need this work that you did on the cross to be applied to my account. Is there anybody today that that's you? Maybe for the first time you're hearing this, or maybe you've heard this before, but you've never 
receive Jesus into your life as your Savior to save you from your sins and as the Lord of your life to be master of your life. Is that anybody here today? And you know today you need and you want Jesus to be your Savior. You need and you want forgiveness. And you need and you want someone bigger than yourself to call the shots of your life. I'm just going to ask you right now to raise up your hand and to be numbered as a Christian and to just say to the Lord today, Lord, that's me. You did it for me. You died on the cross for me. You took the whipping for me. You carried the cross for me. You willingly laid down your hands for the nails for me. And that blood that you shed on Mount Calvary that trickled down the the wooden cross, it was for me. Anybody today you would say for the first time, Rory, pray for me because I want that and I need that. Lord sees you. Wonderful. Lord sees you. Wonderful thing. Anybody else? You just know, you know, the Psalms say, if there were a list of my sins written, who could stand? But then the psalm goes on to say, but there's forgiveness with you. You guys, you know what you've done. If there was a list of sins, what would you ever do? You know that you're condemned. But in Jesus, there's forgiveness. Just to get today, in a final moment, you know that scroll written with your sins, it would be a rolling scroll. It would roll all the way down Mackay and down Crooked River Canyon, pop on down on Highway 20 and hit Wagon Tire, heading down 395. That list of sins goes on and on and on. Who could stand? But I need forgiveness in Jesus. Anybody else? We're going to sing a song and I want you to consider the song and I'm going to give an opportunity at the end for you to raise your hand and to be numbered. And the reason we would have you raise your hand is so we know that you're someone that wants to be a Christian and follow Jesus and we want to help you with that. It would be foolish for us to let you go off on your own and try to figure it out. That's not how God has designed a church. But I want to say Paul and is it Murphy? Merle. Paul and Merle, man, I love you guys. And, you know, Paul and Merle, I think it was two weeks ago, you brothers raised your hands and lifted your hands to say, I want Jesus. And I just want to bear witness with you brothers. And as you've humbled yourself before the Lord, you can have confidence that you're saved as you've received his grace in your life. Your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. I just want to speak assurance to you. I appreciate you, Paul. Paul's a guy that I've gotten to share the gospel with in multiple times. And if you know Paul, he's a longtime part of Prineville. It's been an amazing thing to watch Paul say, I want to follow Jesus and I want my sins forgiven. And just appreciate humility, Paul and Merle, just to say, whatever it is, Jesus, right here. I know last week, right here, right here, Lord. And some of us are like, I'm not doing it. I'm going to resist and I'm going to resist. And you got these strong men of prime hill that are like i just need you jesus i just need you so bad i just need you so bad in my life and that is who jesus is is coming for a broken heart and a contrite spirit he's never denied and so during this next song let the lord soften you let the lord humble you 